0: Asian American and Pacific Islander stories and perspectives exist beyond a single month. So in an effort to capture a snapshot of some of these stories, We Love Buford Highway and the Asian American Advocacy Fund come together through solidarity to bring you a three-part story series to highlight the voices and journeys of several AAPI organizers here in Atlanta. Through group discussions and individual interviews, these local voices will unpack some of the victories, struggles, and complexities of identifying as API in the South. The AAPI Organizing in the South series will put out new episodes every Friday, starting May 12th. Don't forget to follow this podcast to get notified every time we release another episode. In this individual story, you will hear Janie Kim, Community Engagement Specialist for Asian American Advocacy Fund and Aparna Bhattacharya, the Executive Director of Raksha since 1998. Over the years, she has been part of creating organizations like Tapestry Inc. and International Women's House to meet the needs of immigrant and refugee survivors in Georgia. Her work is focused on crime victimization and gender-based violence in immigrant communities and providing training on the needs of underserved communities. This is a conversation between the two of them with a focus on Aparna's story. Before the interview, she selected questions that spoke to her and shared her answers with Janie. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: So brief immigration story, family background, and how did you get here into the US and to Atlanta? Okay. So first I start off, my name is Aparna Bhattacharya. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, And I am with an organization called Raksha which means protection in many South Asian languages. And we do a lot of work on working with South Asian survivors of violence. Thank you, Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, yeah, so go ahead. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I mean, part of the story is to talk about our histories in the South. And, and my parents came from India via London, via Atlanta, and they came directly to Atlanta. I don't know if it was because my dad was a civil engineer and Atlanta was building and they needed civil engineers, but somehow he came to Atlanta and, um, of course he's not here for me to ask those questions. of like, what? Why Atlanta of all places? But I remember him telling stories of walking up and down Peachtree Street looking for work. (laughs) You know? Um, and he came probably late 60s, 70s, and, um... Yeah, he's worked for different pla- he worked for different places like uh, Marta I believe he worked for Simon's Eastern, maybe Lockheed at some point. And I know that he has a part of the history of helping, um, doing a lot of the design for the Marta parking lots. What? As a civil engineer. Yeah. Um so, I mean, I like to think that my dad had a role in helping build Atlanta a <laughs> yeah. as a civil engineer, but that those are you know, we had a lot of South Asian civil engineers that are part of building Atlanta. So I think that's a important part of it. But the other part of my family's history is that we had the first Indian restaurant here in Atlanta. What? Yeah. <laughs> <Second one? laughs> yeah, the first Indian restaurant in Atlanta. It was probably in the 70s, and my you know, it was a pizza place in Cherokee. It's now a chin, chin, I believe, but it was the first Indian restaurant in Atlanta. You had a few partners. We're finding out more about the history, you know, now. Um, there were a lot of partners that were part of starting the first Indian restaurant here in Atlanta. And, you know, while it's not still here, um, you know, that's pretty courageous to come into, you know, United States and in the South in the 60s. Yeah. Well, late, 70, 70. well, late 60s, early 70s, because I feel like the restaurant maybe was around in maybe 72, 73, nice. or they were starting it, you know, because um, I was, I I was in a playpen and there's pictures of me in a playpen at the restaurant, but it was originally a pizza place and dad actually, they ran it, dad and mom. Um, And their business partner, they ran it as a pizza place for a while before they created an Indian restaurant. So it was a brand-new cuisine, a lot of risk-taking and and a lot of courageousness um, that it took. But my dad, so my childhood was my dad working as a civil engineer during the day, coming back home, working in the restaurant. And then, of course, like getting me up in the morning and taking me to school is, is part of my memories, you know. So I think that's that's part of the history in Atlanta, and I I feel like there's so much of the South Asian and API history that's not told, like we have all the names of all these other folks, you know, in our histories, but I feel like we really don't have the history of the API community in Atlanta and their contributions, and I really would love to see that occur because so many of our families did so many different things, you know what I mean? They built community and and having that restaurant, it was kind of like a hub. The restaurant was called Calcutta. (laughs) And um, they recently did an Atlanta Magazine article on it because I think I had a, a little moment of like getting upset with how one writer wrote something about Indian restaurants and whatever. So, luckily, there was an article on it. But you know, even part of that history, you only have so many pages to talk about that history of like how it was a hub, how my parents, whenever they would meet someone of South Asian heritage, right? They would invite them to come and have a meal and and that was their way of bringing home back to folks, right? And so, you know, I feel like I learned so much about building community from my family and whether it was the restaurant and having people come and that was a time where we weren't divided by whether you're Bengali or whatever. If you're South Asian, we all built community because there weren't many of us, right? Um, and then there was the whole thing of having the first Durga Puja, which is a, a celebration that's quite prevalent for folks that are from West Bengal or Kolkata, like my family is from, and, and they would invite everybody to come, and it was in our yard, and, you know, it was how community came together to put this on. They did all the cooking. All the, <laughs> the cooking was done by the families, and they would spend a weekend of, like, building and painting and decorating and, and that is how we brought a piece of our home into Atlanta, right? And then people would come from North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, just to come to these events. And so, really? yeah, so that's the part of the history that people, you know, may not know about. And again, it goes into who's considered a leader and who's not, right? And how often, like, we're only seeing a leader if we're doing these big things for these certain nonprofits or Certain churches, but like for our, really if we're doing leadership within our own community, are we still considered community leaders? And I think pushing back on those definitions is really important for us to do so that we can see the leaders. And they're the leaders who get all the spotlight, and they're the leaders that do the work every day. And are we often uplifting them and, and, and giving them, um, you know, giving them credit for what they do in community? Right, you don't have to have a title to be a community leader. You can be a community leader just by bringing people together and giving them resources and information, and, food. and fun, right? <laughs> or creating celebrations and finding ways for us to like honor our heritage, you know? And and being someone who like I was born in Atlanta, so it's it's kind of interesting because like I think for so much, and it was at a time where we didn't have a very large API community, right? There might have been maybe five of us in my elementary school right There was probably a lot more when i was in high school but like in our grade there was maybe four or five of us out of 120 and i think you know you didn't like being different at that time right um it's so different now when you have like south asian and api sororities and fraternities yeah. and you have like high schools that have indianites you know um so I think it's, it's such a different experience having grown up when there were so few of us and we were considered so different, right? And, and Indian food was still something that wouldn't have been popular, right? There was, you know, so I think being able to see it mainstream now is beautiful. And, and part of me is like, wow, these kids are so lucky to have their heritage, like really be celebrated, which, you know, growing up, we were all, you know, there was more shame around it for us because we were so different and kids may or may not have understood it. And there were some kids that probably did celebrate it. And now I hear, you know, as an adult, they're like, oh, I really loved going to your parents' restaurant or I really loved baby food. But it was just difficult when you were, like, one of very few <laughs> and you were trying to explain your culture. So I think, you know, there's a lot of us that are still recovering from what it was like to be different. Um, and try to fit in in a in a, large, a culture that was different from your own and when difference was seen as a very negative and dangerous thing yeah i mean yeah it just was different like there was more shyness and like not wanting to share it and and i'm really lucky. i did have a few friends that celebrated it and they loved it but it still was hard to be different yeah. <laughs> especially as a kid oh yeah kind of like... yeah you know so i it, it's 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 interesting to see the shifts now of like growing up in the 70s to like what it's like now in 2023 what do you think those shifts? like well like you know like one of the things is like like johns creek high school has an india night right or or <laughs> international night and it is mostly like south asian and korean kids running the whole thing for us it was international night and you had all kinds of okay. cultures right but like it's like all south asians running it and you see that the the huge you know the huge API influence at these schools. It, it's pretty phenomenal to see that kind of representation of, or that we have like South Asian Asian sororities and fraternities. Like when I was in college, there were no South Asian or Asian fraternities and sororities, right? It was very really? black and white and Jewish, right? I went to UGA, it was black, white, Jewish. I was like, I don't even know where I fit in here. Yeah. Um, and. You know, do I want to join a white sorority? You know, do I if do I want to join a black sorority? I'm not sure. You know, and so trying to figure out where you belong. And that was like what, 1990. Um, that I just wasn't sure. 89, and 90, yeah. I ask you then maybe how you came into your identity and/or how you feel now. Like, when did you start feeling comfortable with yourself? Do you ever feel like you had a moment? You no, know, that's a really great question. Oh, so perfect because you're right. I I didn't necessarily like being different, right? And then I couldn't figure out where I fit in. And I, my first year was at UGA, and I, you know, having grown up off Buford Highway, like I was used to being around different cultures. Even though we still were a minority, but like I grew up with kids from all kinds of communities, you know. And um, really loved it. So going to UGA, when I saw everything is like kind of more black and white, I was just like, I don't even know what to do with this, right? Um, And then seeing the segregation, uh, you know, like, and I understand why now. I didn't understand then. I'm like, why is there a white sorority or a white a Miss? There was a just a Miss UGA, and then there was a Miss Black UGA. Really. And I didn't right. I didn't realize why it was there, but like okay at UGA there was no way at that time that like a minority was gonna win homecoming queen or get that kind of accolades. Um, Now we can definitely see that, but I definitely felt like, okay, I couldn't be here. And I remember seeing racist stuff, and this was more like, you know, uh, black racist stuff at UGA that just really made me really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at some point, Due to other reasons I ended up at Georgia State. Um, we were traveling and then, you know, I took a quarter off and then, you know, I was like, well, you know, it makes more sense for me to be in Atlanta anyway. But I just felt more comfortable being in Atlanta because I couldn't see that racial divide as clearly um, when I was at Georgia State. And I think if, when I was at Georgia State and I, honestly I would avoid the ancient the South Asians. At Georgia State? No, UGA. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had a few friends, and I made some friends, and then even at Georgia State, I probably avoided them, and that's, you know, I met Lily at Georgia State, because we'd hang out really? in the little area by the um, by the uh, library, you mm-hmm. know, I'll kind of stand out there, and that's actually where I met Lily, but uh, I started to hang out with the South Asians a little bit more, but for a while, I just kind of avoided South Asians, because I was afraid, oh, look, gossip, and I'm not as traditionally South Asian as others, mm-hmm. and then I really started getting to know a lot of the Indians at at Georgia State. And I think that's when I started to get more comfortable with my identity and who I was, and I was really finding a place of feeling more comfortable within, like, my Asian. Because my mom would always be like, you're going to remember your language, and you're going to you know, do this and I would kind of resist and roll my eyes and I would just run away from my culture <laughs> so much. But it was at Georgia State that I started to build some friendships and I felt more comfortable with my identity and who I was. And even then I was a minority because a lot of folks were like Punjabi or Gujarati and I'm Bengali. And so even the way we pronounce things, people would be correct like, no, that's how we pronounce it. <laughs> um so that was like the beginning of me being able to feel more comfortable with my, my identity. And then when Raksha started coming around, I mean, I was, you know, uh, I'd already graduated from college and I was working for City of Atlanta as a victim advocate. And then Raksha was just starting. Um, My father handed me the flyer and said, hey, this might be interesting, you know, because it was, of course, dealing with gender-based violence. And that's, my dad knew that was my interest, but here I was working for City of Atlanta and it was a great place for me to find This is where I connect with my community. And it is through doing the work with Raksha, right, that I have learned to love my community, to embrace it, to appreciate the beauty that I didn't really fully, wasn't fully able to do as a child. So, so much healing came from doing this community work that I, I could never imagine that I would be doing work within my community. I think even my mom and dad. You're like, what happened to this kid? I <laughs> oh, do that though, because he didn't do that high. Yeah, he was just like, oh, this might be good things. But I also think for my dad, you know, me doing gender based violence group, this was healing for him too. Because in reality, I believe that my grandmother, who died when she was 23 years old, did experience domestic violence. Um, and this is the duality of it all. Like, my grandfather was a freedom fighter, he was in prison, and, you know, But he had a temper. Like, I think there's stories about, like, my aunt, my dad's sister, like, putting um, sugar instead of salt in a dish or putting salt instead of sugar. One of the things that he, like, tossed it to the side, you know what I mean? And I don't know that I really knew that history, but as I got older and I was doing this work, I realized that my dad, you know, had a father that was somewhat abusive or had a huge temper and that. You know, if you slammed the door, my dad would have a reaction to it. And so, as I started doing this work, I think his own healing started to come in, right? And his own ability to even change how he was and how he was like, I'm gonna, up, and he was always someone who, actually, no, as a kid, I was scared of him. I, he had a temper and I remember like if, if I hurt myself, I remember thinking, oh my God, I don't wanna tell he's gonna yell, right? As an adult, what I see now is his mom died when he was six years old because they didn't have medical care. So if I hurt myself, all his fears and triggers around losing a family member come up because we didn't have a lot of money, you didn't have insurance, you know, so that was his fear. But as a kid, I was just like, oh, he's scary. (laughs) But now I can see, like, what he was scared of. Like, here is this man who came to another country to start all over again, lost his mom was raised you know like grew up in poverty right grew up struggling um but was a smart man who was talented soccer player did well in engineering um and came to this other country but had all these layers of trauma that was never dealt with right and so i think like when i started doing this gender-based violence work he was so on my side my mom would fight with him like why are you letting her do this work She's not making any money, she's driving a, like, not a great car, and he just, he had my back. After he died, she said, your dad would defend you. He would support you and say, you were doing good work. And so I think that's, you know, that's the part of, like, my ability to find love and appreciate my culture and, and see how, like, even my mom making me learn my language or at least listen to it and speak it. How that's benefited me because that's again one of the languages that's been very useful for me to have mm-hmm. and it's gotten better through me doing this work but I totally well I didn't want to learn it growing up I was like I don't want to speak my language and these are all the things that I'm really grateful for my parents that they instilled in me that I can now use in my work on a daily basis and connect with the community oh my gosh. Right. thank you so much for sharing that <laughs> intergenerational like I don't know I just that was just so much depth
0: that came from maybe such a <laughs> broad and general question.
1: But well and I think that's why I want like, you know, the history of our communities to be shared because that line The first, like Indian restaurant and your dad being an OG organizer, even if maybe didn't identify that way. Yeah. Like, inspiring future you organizing to then like I don't know, the waves just Yeah, and we show up had more boundaries around what he would do. He would let anybody in his home and all that. And that. That wasn't always a good thing, but, you know, like, we all show up for community in different ways and with our boundaries, and I think that are the lessons learned from him.
0: Thank you for listening to this special series of AAPI Organizing in the South. We at We of Beeford Highway and the Asian American Advocacy Fund believe that listening is an important way to bridge gaps between communities. So thank you for taking the time to lean in and learn with us today. Be sure to share and rate each episode as we work collectively to amplify the voices of Atlanta's AAPI communities. See you next week.